Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 8. That's where we are today. We are going to spend the next few weeks in the Psalms, and today the key concept is this. The awesome God thinks that we are awesome too. Psalm 8 is the passage that we'll look at. We're going to look at a series of messages all taken from the Psalms written by King David and trying to answer the question, if David had Twitter at his disposal, what would David tweet? That, that question came to me the other day. You know, around our, our world today, of course, we hear about Twitter. Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter but Twitter is a venue for many, including celebrities and politicians, to express their opinions directly to their followers without going through the filter of the media. So in other words, if I'm a famous person and I think that people ought to know my opinions about things and I ought to be listened to, I don't have to call a press conference and, and hope that I'm going to get some coverage and that the coverage will be positive. No, I simply tweet out my thoughts uh, directly to the masses without any filter in between. A tweet is a short statement of less than 280 characters. Donald Trump was a notorious tweeter. Over the course of his presidency, he had 25,000 tweets. So I thought to myself, well, what if King David were to do that? What, what would he tweet? And today we start by imagining David tweeting out a message that uh, he does as he recalls a time, his time as a shepherd in the fields around Bethlehem when he was a young man. Imagine that scene what it was like at night, outside in the fields of a sleepy village with no lights, a moonless night, nothing to obscure the stars, no clouds, no haze of pollution. So when you looked up into that sky, you saw the bright starry sky, a starry sky unlike anything that we can experience today in the Central Valley. Maybe you've seen something close to it if you've gone up to the Sierra on a starry night, You've been able to get away from the lights of civilization. Maybe you're on a camping trip, and there you look up and you say to yourself, wow, look at all those stars. A splendor, uh, the splendor of a starry night like, is, is awesome. I remember once as a kid, I went to camp, and uh, my, uh, my camp counselor, it was a, this was a camp in the Adirondack Mountains of, of New York State, and my camp counselor one night when it was a starry sky, he took us down to the, to the lake of the camp, and he put each of us in a canoe, uh, our own individual canoe, pushed us off, and he instructed us when we got into the middle of the lake to lie down in the canoe and look up at the starry sky. It was like each of us had a personalized planetarium to look at the sky. All of the light was, was uh, cut off. I couldn't see anything around me, but straight up, nothing but stars. It was amazing. I still remember it to this day. Now, David is recalling a scene like that in uh, this psalm that we'll read together. He does not have modern science at his disposal. He has no real sense of the size of what he sees. But as he looks up on that starry sky, he's looking at the Milky Way. The Milky Way is the galaxy of our solar system, our sun and nearby planets. And uh, there's, an, uh, this is, there's an artist's rendering of that I want you, want you to see. Uh, I read once that 
that uh, if the Milky Way were the size of a quarter, that would mean that our sun in the Milky Way would be a microscopic dot in that quarter. And on that scale, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, if, if, uh, if, our, if our solar system was the size of a quarter, got that wrong, if our solar system was the size of the quarter, the sun would be a, a microscopic dot. And on that scale, the Milky Way would, would, would stretch uh, across the entire length of the United States of America. If you traveled 186 miles per second, that's the speed of light, it would take you 200,000 years to cross the Milky Way. And this is one of what's thought to be billions of galaxies. We ponder the immense size of the universe and the grandeur of what we see on these starry nights. And we come with the same question that, that David has. What is man that you are mindful of us? Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise to God, but it asks an important question about us. So let's start our reading in verse 3. Here's what David would tweet. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. From the perspective of David as he stands outside and at night and sees those starry skies, it makes him feel like human beings are fairly insignificant. And that's the human reaction to the power of God's heavens. It makes us seem small. And David actually repeats this thought again in Psalm 144. He says, O Lord, what is man that you care for him, the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. What is man? The astronomer Carl Sagan, who's now passed away, picked up on this smallness theme. And in one of the books he wrote, he writes these words, We live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. You know, Sagan would answer the question, what is man, with the, with the words, not much, not much. And if you leave out God, that will always be your answer. The big philosophical questions of life are, who are we? How did we get here? Why are we here? And if all you have to answer those questions is a consideration of the physical universe, your view of humanity will always be that we have very little worth or meaning. But a Bible-saturated worldview will reject that point. It will reject what I call the nothing-but philosophies of our time. A nothing-but philosophy is a philosophy that answers the question, what is man, with the answer, nothing but an animal, or nothing but the result of random chance, or nothing but the top of the food chain for now, nothing but the chemical systems in your brain. But nothing but philosophies are false, and they're needlessly depressing. David doesn't agree with the nothing but philosophy regarding humanity because David is able to see past the creation to the Creator who put it all in place. And though we seem puny in comparison to God's massive creative work, when you understand that the one who hung these stars cares for you. 
nothing but goes away. God loves humanity. Surprising but true. You are important in the eyes of God. The awesome God thinks you are pretty awesome. And verse 5 shows us why and how God demonstrates His care for us. Verse 5, you made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. God cares for us because He made us. We are the work of His hands, Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. The image of God means that we matter as it has been invested to us. It means that our value comes from the top down, conferred on us by our God who is beyond us. It means that God has given humanity qualities that He also possesses, but He's put those qualities in us in miniature form. The image of God is so basic to human beings that all beings, all human beings have that quality. It's not for a certain race or a certain ethnicity. And it's so basic to who we are as humans that even though we've fallen into sin, the image of God is retained in us. The image of God is that quality that God has in Himself that He's transferred to us as a race so that we might be able to glorify Him and fulfill our purpose. An image is a representation. If you go into a federal building today in this country, you'll see the picture of the President of the United States somewhere on the wall. It represents the fact that this building, this office is part of the government and he is the head of the government. The image on that wall tells the story that that office is connected to the government and to the leader. An image of God in human beings makes the point that there is a God who is beyond us, that we are His creation, and we are here to accomplish the purpose that He has for us. And not only does He care for us as we are His creation, verse 5 says, He honors us. You made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. Our worth comes from the top down. God created us as the crowning achievement in His creation process. And He crowns us with glory and honor above all other aspects of His creation. For we are made in His image. Now, we need to address a translation issue in verse 5. For some of you who are reading older uh, versions of the Bible, you will see the word uh, heaven, uh, angels where I read heavenly beings from the NIV. You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You might ask the question, well, why is the one I'm reading different? The Hebrew word there that we are, we're translating is the word actually Elohim, which we usually translate as God or gods. In fact, that might be in the margin of your Bible if you're looking at the page right now. But, this tra but the translation uh, angel uh, came about when the Jews translated their Hebrew scriptures into Greek. They translated that word as angel. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, uh, the, the Hebrew author is quoting this psalm from that Greek translation. And there it reads, you made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor. So there's an interesting thing that's happening here. The author of the New Testament book of Hebrews is quoting from his Greek Old Testament as he writes to his readers who are reading in Greek. 
But when you go back to the original, to the, to the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew language, angels is not a good translation there. And since it's not particularly clear to our English translators, if God is speaking to God Himself as if you made Him a little lower than yourself, or to the heavenly beings in general, that would include God, the translation the NIV has come up with is heavenly beings. But still the emphasis is on the honor that is placed on humanity. And God has given us this honor to work out His image in us in a one particular aspect, and that is to have dominion over the world that He has created for us and placed us on. You see, God has dominion. He rules. And part of His image in us is that we also have dominion on a lesser scale to rule the world that He has made. David gets to that as he continues in verse 6 of our psalm. He says, you made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the flocks and herds and the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. David shows us that the king of the universe assigns to us a sub-kingdom. And under his authority, we are given authority as well. We are to be rulers over the works of his hands. Now, what that means to us is a responsible stewardship of the earth. It means that we are tasked as human beings with keeping the earth functioning well and in good order. Or good order. Dominion does not mean destroy. Dominion does not give a license to trash or to pollute. It is to live in, out the authoritative care under God's direction. This position was granted to us back in Eden, and we still retain that role of dominion. The responsibility to care for God's earth is still ours. It's a stewardship entrusted to us. So the answers to the big questions of life are starting to unfold before us in the psalm. Who are we? God's crowning creation. Why are we here? To bring God glory. How shall we do that? How shall we live as rulers and stewards of the earth for God's caring for God's creation all around us? I want you to see that David has the answers to the big questions of life because he sees through the physical to the spiritual, through the creation to the Creator Himself. These are the issues of this section of Psalm 8. But if we were to back up to the beginning of the psalm, we, we see David asking an even larger question, a bigger picture question, and that is the question, who is God? Let's read verse, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. David answers the question, who is God, by showing us God's characteristics. He says he is, first of all, majestic. How majestic is your name? When we encounter that phrase, the name of God, you need to always remember that that is a shorthand for referring to all that God is, all of His attributes and qualities, summed up in that phrase, the name of God. And David is saying, 
One of the things that we see about the name of God, He is majestic. It means impressive in beauty, impressive in dignity, impressive in grandeur. Interestingly enough, that Hebrew word majestic, could, that we translate majestic, could also have been translated mighty, so impressive in power. We see both His majesty and His might as we look at creation. That's what David is being impressed with. But we're reminded that His glory is above the heavens because this is just the work of His hands, the evidence of His abilities, but He is beyond the stars and the skies. We are awed by the heavens, but we are always invited by the heavens to look past them, to look through them, and to be awed even more by the power of the Creator. He is majestic, and His majesty and might is praised, David says, by the innocent ones. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Interesting enough, Jesus quotes this very verse, and the setting in which He quotes it is in a scene right after the triumphal entry. Jesus has made his way into the city. He has heard the praises of the people as they've waved their palm branches. And Jesus is now in the temple area. But the praises are still going on. People are still shouting and crowding around him. And children have picked up the praising. And it says in Matthew 21, verse 15, But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? Hosanna to the son of David, you see, was a phrase that meant you are the long-anticipated Messiah. You are the son of David who is greater than David. You can save us. Save us now. All of that is packed into that phrase, Hosanna to the son of David. And the religious leaders understood all of that. They knew that that's what these children were saying. And they expected that Jesus would stop that kind of talk. Don't let them say that about you. Don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus says, of course they're saying it. God has ordained that the innocent ones will speak the truth. The innocent ones will speak what is real and the truth about me. But then at the end of verse 2, David says something funny or odd. He says, because of your enemies to silence the foe and avenger read that psalm many times probably. How does that phrase fit? What is he saying there? What he's saying is this, the evil ones who are opposed to the glory of God and opposed to the reality of God will be silenced. And the silence will be brought about by the praise that comes from the innocent ones. That will bring about the silence of the enemy. The idea being this, it is so apparent from the innocent praise that comes from the mouth of a child, it is so clear that that is right and true and pure that the falsehood of arrogance of the enemies of God will be revealed. I read once a book by Cornelius Plantinga 
And in that, he had a phrase that just sticks with me. The phrase is this, wisdom's first child is humility. Wisdom's first child is humility. The simple humility of a child that worships God shows wisdom. Your simple, humble worship is wisdom in action. And the response of humanity to all of this truth, who God is, who we are, who we are, why we are here, what it's all about, is summed up again in verse 9 of our psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He ends exactly where he began, in praise to God, in worship of God. But there's just a little bit more that we could note. And that comes as you just consider the Hebrew here. The phrasing is, are words that you might be familiar with. The phrasing, O Lord, our Lord, is Yahweh Edunainu. Yahweh Edunainu. And it could be translated, O Lord, our ruler. The idea is, the king is active in his rule. And we are ruled by the king. He's not a far-off, removed authority with no contact to his subjects. Rather, he is a directly intervening king and a ruler in our lives. And that intervening king is on our side. That intervening king has loving desires for us. The awesome God thinks we're pretty awesome. So, as you look up at the stars tonight, remember to think past the stars, through to the one who hung them in place, and recognize he loves you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for King David's thoughts. Thank you that thousands of years later we still remember them, we still rejoice in them, and they still speak wisdom and truth to us. Lord, we pray that we would not be embittered, not be beaten down, not be discouraged by the things we see going on around us in our world and by the difficulties we face sometimes on our own. Help us to recognize we still are loved, loved by God, the awesome creator, powerful God. Help us to walk in that love. Help that love to change our lives and enable us, Lord, to love others. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.